You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with your hosts, Andy Grant and Apio Hunter. Real Men Feel is all about encouraging men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to opening up discussions that most men aren't having, but you certainly don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel podcast is produced live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern for your growth and enjoyment. You can find more information about the Real Men Feel movement at realmenfeel.org. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and at facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. This is a weekly program, and your comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in the Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get into this week's show. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. I am your host, Andy Grant, and we are very excited uh, for today's show because we are continuing our flow of guests from down under. And uh, we have a real first for Real Men Feel. Uh, we, for the first time, our guests are an actual married couple. So before we get to them, I need to introduce my beloved Real Men Feel partner, Apio Hunter. Hey, Andy. How's it going? Very good. So a lot of people think kind of some things we think we're a couple, so i give it that introduction to you me. Might as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Confuse <laughs> the masses, I say, right? <laughs> Let's do that. I'm, I'm all for it. Cool. So, so as I said, um, today's guests are actually friends. I was introduced to them by last week's guest, Amanda Foy, and they are from Down Under, and uh, they're both veterans. They actually, they actually met during military service. They're speakers, teachers, and creators of the Resilient Leaders Foundation, and really just a whole slew of programs I've discovered, but very ha I'm very glad to have them here and welcome them, and Kirsty and James Greenshields. G'day. Thanks for having us, Andy. It's our pleasure. And Apio, <laughs> We're joined at the app now. Yeah. <laughs> joined at the podcast. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, Amanda turned me on to you guys, and, and James, I saw a couple videos of you, and as I mentioned, you're both Army veterans, you've both been in combat, you've both been through a lot of stuff, you're both, you know, rugged Australian folk, um, and James, you really come off as the stereotypical man's man and a tough guy. But you also are just willing to lay it all out there. You, I, you're, you wear your heart on your sleeve. I, I've seen you just speak so openly, authentically, and emotionally. And, and that's what gets my attention. That, so that's why you're here. So you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of your, your, your background and how you came into this, this place of, of authentic leadership and, and speaking. Gosh, uh, I grew up in a, a loving family with a dad as a priest who was a Vietnam veteran and a farmer. And uh, chaplain to the to the army, to the police, and to our local country fire authority. Mum was a school teacher at the local school. I grew up on two thousand acres that bordered well, the southern boundary of the largest military training area in, in our south southern state called Victoria. And so, as a young a young guy, I was introduced to a, a wide variety of people, but a heavy military influence of people coming out of Vietnam. That spent a lot of time helping these people. Uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, he suffered from post-traumatic stress because of his service uh, over in Vietnam and came back and had a series of depressive episodes afterwards. I went to boarding school as a young teenager. Uh, I really had to learn to defend myself, made a lot of, of decisions about my own self-confidence, my own self-esteem, my own self-worth. And then straight out of boarding school, I joined the military, funnily enough. So I became an army officer for 17 years. Uh, I had some incredible ups and some incredible lows, but overall I really enjoyed my magical time. Uh, in the process, I met this lovely lady sitting beside me. I've given her every single reason to leave me, but she stood strong and uh, she, she really saw the real me whilst I started to become immersed in a culture uh, and started to believe a different story. I was given an incredible honour in 2006 and seven of leading uh, over 100 soldiers, Australian soldiers, into Iraq, where we actually were based alongside Americans in the southern province called uh, Al Mathana, um and uh, at a Talil Air Force Base. 
And uh, during that time, we learned an incredible amount about how people operate under very duress or a lot of duress and a lot of hardship, but particularly about how I was as a person, as a leader. Now, overall, I, I now look back with a lot of comfort in, in realising the job that I was able to do. But at the same time, again, I was making decisions about myself. 23rd of April 2007, my life totally changed when I was hit by a roadside bomb. And that basically was a wake-up call, a massive one to say, James, continue on your path. Uh, and that means that you'll be looking for a second wife. Uh, and I already liked the one I had. But so I had to, to wake up and understand my priorities in life. I chose at a subconscious level to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and depression followed very soon after that. I didn't know what emotions were. You know, I thought they were basically four, fired up, pissed off, shattered and numb. And they're not, they're not emotions and they don't really help a person understand themselves nor the, the messages that emotions carry us. So I had to go through that journey. And on the other side, when I chose to recover, uh, I found light. I found light inside myself. I found my true purpose and, and fire. And it's, it's driven me ever since to help young people understand themselves more at a younger age uh, and help older people understand that uh, you can actually move through the mud there is there is hope out there there is actually light and all it is is it comes from within it doesn't come from without i thought other people had to heal me no one healed me i healed myself with some amazing support by some incredible people around me and this lady sitting with me would be the biggest person that that was there for me and in my 25 years of leadership she's the lady that i've or the person i've, I've learned most about leadership off so yeah and now i I suppose the biggest things I've ever done in my life were taking part in, in rebuilding my part of our relationship and also um, rebuilding my, my connection and relationship with my two daughters, Abby, 11, and Penny, who's eight. How wonderful. Now that you've told that story, I'm curious to hear yours, Kirsty. <laughs> <laughs> my story uh, started quite early for me um I used to say that uh I found that I I achieved a lot of things in a short time that uh, James had a James had a literal bomb that occurred for him but for me it was uh, I had quite a few things happen from the time I was about 16 years of age that really helped me to reconnect with my body and uh and they were asking me to listen to what was going on for me. So when I was 16, I, um, I was running, running a lot. I, was an I did a lot of athletics at school and I came down with glandular fever and that to me was, was a huge thing because I never used to get sick and I was put out for six weeks. Uh, when I was 23... 22, I got married to a man that I say I never actually agreed to marry because when he asked me to marry him, I never actually said yes. And uh, being a typical people pleaser, I just then got caught up in the, in the avalanche of activities and organising a wedding. And I remember walking, and I share it because I wrote a book about um, our whole experiences in our relationship and I share in the book that I was walking down the aisle and I felt almost like a robot that day that I was walking down the aisle because uh, there was no feeling, there was no connection in me and everything was just happening robotically and I was asking myself, what, what am I doing here? Uh, Needless to say, that marriage didn't last very long um, and and I caused a lot of chaos along the way. And that really, um, a broken leg as a result of jumping out of a plane um, with a parachute, obviously. Um, Luckily. Unfortunately, <laughs> yes. Sent me into a spiral of depression and was a catalyst for me to essentially run away from that marriage. And, and there were a lot of things that I owned after that, but not necessarily 100%. And as a result, I, I went to the Army Recruit Training Centre at Kapika, which is where I met James. And then we became really great mates. And we, we, so that's how we started our relationship, which is essentially, as he said, we've been able to withstand the storms of what's gone on for us over the years. And I believe that a really strong reason for that is because we were such great mates before we even went into relationship with with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, uh, I actually, three years later after the marriage breakdown, I was diagnosed with depression 
and uh, I saw a psychiatrist and I went down that path of taking antidepressants and that only lasted three months because I had allowed myself to reconnect with my body and I realized that these weren't helping me, they were actually making it worse for me. So I decided that I was going to take myself off the antidepressants and I was gonna find a new way. As a result, I decided that I wanted to become a naturopath and not long after that, I left the army and studied naturopathy and um, that's, that's the path that took me up over the years, whilst James was in Iraq uh, fighting a war, I was learning about vibrational medicine and I was learning all that woo-woo stuff yeah. that um, about energy and how we can, how our body can actually heal itself through belief and through allowing ourselves to to access higher vibrational levels. So he came home and uh, essentially came home to a new woman. But I also knew that the day that he was hit by the bomb we were beginning a new relationship and when we met for the first time when he came home it was a blank canvas and we were two people that had never met each other before because he'd changed and i'd changed mm. and that allowed me to be able to have the compassion i needed to hold the space for him which was something that i wasn't perfect at believe me but it allowed me the ability to be able to hold the space for him and to learn more and more about how important it was to hold the space for him to be able to, to heal his wounds that we couldn't see. Cool. So even in this time of, of physical separation, you really both had your, your moments of transformation to then yeah. kind of allow you to meet newly again. Yeah. I'm, I constantly say the worst day in Iraq for me was not when I was hit by the roadside bomb. It was, uh, two months into my tour, when we just had a, an operational pause, so the tempo had, had slowed for a day, and I woke up one morning and I felt this, like my stomach was just being torn in two, and I, I didn't understand, and I had all this, this sadness in me about an incident that had happened two days before I left. And I was in the kitchen at our house in Darwin, and I'd just got home from um, work. It was late. Kirsty had a beautiful meal prepared with candles there. And Abby was 10 months old and she got it ready for me just to put her to bed. And I got a phone call five minutes before coming home from a mate who asked me if I, he was in town for the night and said, come out for a beer. And I said, yes. So I get home and I say, listen, I'm going to go out for a beer. And, and Kirsty says, please don't. In my mind, she was putting the guilt trip on me. And I used the, the term. I'm just about to go to a war zone. I may not see him again. And if you think about that, that just gives you, it's how detached I had become from that which was most important to me. And why I detached was because I was actually internally so scared that I wouldn't see that again. So better that I'm emotionally separated from Kirsty and Abby in case I don't see them again, otherwise I'll have to grieve. Uh, and so the grieving process had actually started already unbeknownst to me. So. We had a massive argument in the kitchen and Kirsty did something that she hadn't done before, hasn't done since, and that smacked me right across the face. And I looked down at her in my, through my eyes, luckily I didn't say it, but I thought, how could you hit me? I'm the one going to the war zone. When I woke up two months into that tour, I saw our relationship through her eyes and I saw how much I had contributed to that incident. And that gutted me because I grew up, you know, in a farming community where loyalty was huge and the military loyalty is huge. Mm -hmm. But I didn't understand the roles I was playing in life as a husband and a father and as a military officer. I didn't realise I'd given all to the military at the total expense of my family. And I'm the one who, who got on one knee and asked this lady to spend the rest of her life with me and to create a family. Now, the big thing though is... I, I wanted to be a dad. I didn't know how to be a dad. And I was scared. You couldn't have had this conversation back then because I would never have admitted that I was scared. But I didn't know what to do. I, I'd, I'd actually started to close down my heart because and, and literally wear body armour, figuratively and literally, um, so that people didn't get too close because I had quite a lot of wounds. And in the process, you know, when cursed held space, when I got back, I, I was intensely angry at times. I put my fist through many cupboards. Um, I, I, I smacked my daughter more because of what I'd done than she had. I can't even remember what she'd done. Um, I had, did a whole series of very aggressive things 
that my family lived through. And the reason why that was happening was there's this beast inside. Kirsty never owned that as a self though, did you, babe? You, you always held space and, and, and said, that's your beast you need to deal with. I'm here to help you, but you've got to deal with it. And that's why, that's why the resilience remained in our family unit because Kirsty didn't take that on. And in a clinical sense, if a person, a partner does, it's called secondary traumatization because the whole fabric of the family unit falls apart. And, and the thing that held us together is Kirst didn't take my baggage as hers. My own personal growth along, along the road, um, with James, that, that incident that James refers to in the kitchen where I slapped him across the face, that was a really huge thing for me, as you can imagine, um, not being a violent person. I left, I left the military in 2002, so I'd been out of the military at that time for five years. And I had, in my relationship with James, I'd brought baggage from my first relationship. And me as a person, my first instinct and the program that I taught myself through life is to run from conflict. So every ounce of me was wanting to run away from my marriage at that point in time. And when I slapped him across the face, I was overcome with a sense of guilt. But when I said goodbye to him three days later at the airport in Darwin, I went down the escalator and I didn't look back and I was just filled with a sense of relief because I went, thank God he's gone from my life and I don't know if I ever want him to come back. And he almost didn't come home, but he came, but, but I believe one of the reasons he came home for me was because I did a lot of work in the process whilst he was away. I was able to give myself the space and I was able to create an environment where I learned what, what was actually really important to me and what I wanted in my relationship. So when he, when he spoke to me and he told me how he changed, I said to him, I don't have a reference point for this, but I love you and I want you in my life. So I'm prepared to, I'm, I'm prepared to work for it. And that's essentially what stopped me from running away was giving myself the space and deciding what it was I wanted in my relationship with, with him or just in a relationship in general. You know, I, I really appreciate well, that you're both here, uh, obviously, and, and sharing this, this notion because, you know, I created Real Men Feel so for, to start to give guys permission to drop the act that they got it all figured out and that, you know, you know, what if the idea of being tough meant you were so tough and brave, you were willing to feel and show your emotions. But I also really appreciate you, Kirsty, talking about, you know, going down that marriage aisle and feeling numb and, and shutting off your emotions and wanting to run away. And that, you know, these aren't just male issues. They aren't just female issues. You know, it, we're, we're all human beings. We all have emotions. Yeah. And, and so is this kind of a, a core to the whole, you know, empowering the family and, and creating positive change throughout that by, by allowing people to get authentically in touch with really how they're feeling and, and share it? Uh, yeah, hell yeah. Uh, the, the thing we're hearing a lot out there at the moment is this term authentic. But so many people have lost connection with who they really are. They don't even know what their own definition of authentic is. And so they're claiming, you know, just be authentic. Authentic leadership, it even has a model of leadership called the authentic leadership model. So the thing is, how can you model you? If you do that, there's rigidity that comes. We're a naturally flowing being. So, you know, we, we've moved away from the term authentic to the term simply real because, you know, who are we and, and, and own every part of you. We're there. We've got a human experience. Anger is not a negative emotion. Matter of fact, none of the supposed emo like negative emotions are. Anger, sadness, shame, fear or guilt. They all have a message. They're all rich with a message, if we close down on them, we're closing down on a natural radar into the environment we're operating in that's trying to tell us messages. Anger's simply telling us that our personal boundaries have been violated or our expectations of the world aren't being met. It's calling us to change. Exactly, it kicks you in with adrenaline to help you even do the job. It's, it's so kind, it helps you try and change. But what do we do? No, it's bad. No, you go to your room. You're not right. It's not right for you to be angry. Naughty, naughty, naughty. So, from a really early age, not only that, if you get angry at your mum, you get smacked. Or a lot of people, if they choose that type of uh, discipline, I remember that's what in my family when I grew up, dad was a disciplinarian. And sometimes he wouldn't be home. A lot of the time he wasn't home. He was out helping other people or out on the property. And so if I did something wrong, 
wait until your father gets home. And it would kick this whole period of waiting and this whole stewing inside me, waiting and waiting for the punishment to come. So I had a massive issue inside about um, actions that I took and the responsibility for that because I feared taking responsibility because of this long, prolonged uh, period I would expect the punishment to come because I had done something negative. And I didn't understand these emotions. I didn't understand this thing of fear and what fear was all about. I thought fear was a red light. It's not. It's an amber light saying, hey, dude, just wait up a bit. You know, you might be going to do something in a bit too much of a rush. All your senses need to come alive for you actually to survive and thrive in this environment. And it's a natural tendency for us as humans to want to run away from fear because we that we have the fear because we perceive that a situation is painful. So if if we if we don't allow ourselves to feel these so-called negative emotions, what happens is we get stuck in the fear. So the fear takes over rather than allowing ourselves to feel the guilt or the anger or the sadness or the shame, and then we get get stuck in fear. And if we get stuck in fear as adults and as parents, then that's what our children are seeing. So we're we're trying to stop our children from having these experiences because we think it's going to be painful. And when we're looking at empowering the family unit, what we're saying is we need to allow ourselves and our children to have these experiences that we perceive to be painful so that they can learn from them because how else do we learn as humans? Life doesn't have to be painful and life doesn't have to be suffering. But the way that we learn that is by actually going through the experience in the first place, not running away from it you know, what you've been saying just has resonated with me on so many levels so many levels about particularly the bit about fear and wanting things for our children and wanting them not to experience certain things as well as uh, all of the emotions especially the ones that we assign those labels to as being the bad emotions this seems to have been the, the theme for me this week because one of the things I, I talk about and work with a lot are the principles of joy the fourth principle of joy as I see it is Every emotion that we feel is an expression of the totality of our existence. Yeah. So when we allow all of them to flow and we, allow all, and we embrace every single emotion that we experience, as you said, James, it is pointing us back in the direction of that joyful, naturally joyful center. And, you know, the conversation with, with the children about the fear, the everything that we, that we experience that we don't want them to, to experience. I remember having a conversation one time with a, with a very dear friend of mine when I was talking about, because I never had kids of my own, but I had two stepsons, and now they're starting their own families. And so when my first grandchild was born, I was talking about how much I would love to see so many wonderful things for my grandson. She stopped me and said, what you want for him is completely irrelevant. What he wants for himself is the most important thing. I'm like, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you were bringing up so much from my own life that has resonated on so many different levels. And what a beautiful way of sharing that. So that's just my way of saying thank you so much for sharing that so, so eloquently and so beautifully. Thank you. And yeah. so, so what are the, some of the specific ways that, that you are helping communities change by, by starting with the family? What are some of the, the, the messages you share or the programs that you have? Well, we go back and we use the term the warrior in a lot of our work. Uh, and it's the archetypal warrior. Uh, there's so much misunderstanding about what the warrior is. I needed to go to a war zone to work out what a true warrior really is. Uh, and you know, I, I charged off to a war zone realistically as a hero, wanting external recognition and, and validation for me. And one of the reasons why I, I um, disconnected from Kirsty was at a deep level, I didn't believe I had what it took to lead soldiers in war and combat and bring them all home. So what happened is that because of that belief, the behaviour that came out was that I became incredibly dedicated to work. I'd turn up before sunrise and I'd go home after sundown. And like some of my soldiers, my senior soldiers, said to me, boss, why? You send us home to our families. You say, go and take your wife out for coffee. You're going to, you know, she's not going to be here very soon because you're going to be in a war zone. Yet you're here to last life. There's, there's an incongruence here in your behaviour. And I just, I just said to him, uh, it's all good. I'm doing exactly what needs to happen. I had excuse for that. What was really going on was that belief that dedication equaled competence, which we, we all know it doesn't. But that was the behaviour because of this deep-seated belief. And that was torturing my family. I, I couldn't 
coupled with the fact that I was emotionally disconnecting from my family because of a fear of loss, then all that was just a, a cauldron. Um, and realistically, the person I was disconnecting to from, I should say, was myself. And so I developed, you know, I was a very, very competent military officer. Um, I left the military on the cusp of the promotion to Lieutenant Colonel on the, the next level. I'd done my promotion course and excelled at that. Um, but at the same time, I realised if I went down that path, I would continue to be disconnected from, from myself. I needed to go and literally find myself. So our programs, yeah, we, we talk about the warrior, but everything comes back to helping people understand themselves and basically i suppose the first question we ever ask anyone is who are you and it's it sounds like a pretty simple question but it's so multi-leveled and deep uh and you know i don't know how many times i've asked myself that question i just get a richer and richer answer the more i do and so coming back to to help young people connect who they really are and i was having a chat with a, a 15 year old today and uh he's been you know heavy into the marijuana and He's, um, he doesn't really want to go to school anymore. It doesn't suit him and he's, he's kicking back with that a bit. He wants to become a mechanic. So I'm having a chat to this young guy and it becomes really evident that he doesn't even know why he's smoking marijuana. He's, he's an amazing young guy. He's got so much potential that he doesn't even know is sitting inside himself, but he's disconnected. And so if it comes on the Young Warrior, we, we help. And the Young Warrior program is all about helping young people ask that question in a way which is relevant to them and then get their own answers. Because we've realised that my answers are my answers, curses are curses. We need to help people ask the right questions of themselves and find out how to find their own answers. And then we can, that's how we can nurture true adults instead of, or grown-ups, I should say, instead of you know adults there's a lot of young people at the moment in australian society and i'm pretty sure it's the same in america craving elders craving grown-ups there's a lot of in their mind there's a lot of adults walking the street i just want a, a true adult that i can connect with and i can respect and go back to the, those tenets of respect of trust of, of true discipline which is not imposed true discipline comes from love within and, and that love inspires the priority of things and the respect of things so that discipline is, is realistically, it's an output. It's a behavioural tendency based on this code within ourselves. And that code, if we break, shame will come along to tell us, hey, dude, James, wait up a minute, brother. That's a red light, man. If you keep going down that road, you are going to break your moral code. That's shame comes along and slaps me in the face and tells me to get back on my moral code. So I love shame now and I want to embrace it if I feel it instead of doing it because it is a social emotion that tends for us to, to you know, cover ourselves and, and not want to be open. Um, so our, all our programs are aligned with that. And Kirsty runs some brilliant stuff with women particularly. The Young Warrior Project tends to be one of our favourites because we feel invested in the sustainable future of humanity because we've got two young girls. So um, we love the Young Warrior Project and it's been something that's developed over the years. You know, when we, had, when we sat down in 2009 and we decided, right, this is what we want to create, it was to give young people the skills, resources and structures they need to create a more sustainable humanity and contribute to a better planet. And so what we did then was we went, okay, well, how can we continue to do this every day? As you guys know, when we're, when we're setting goals, we need to be able to find every day how we're doing that. So we started with our own family unit and we started listening to our children more and involving them in family, in family communications, in family conversations conversations and our decisions are always spoken about at a family level we always we we tell the kids that we will make we will make a decision and we will make a strong firm decision but we will always use their input so i suppose use, use an example of this house we're going to move to on on tuesday how did this house manifest we sat down and uh, and it's been a process of, of um, unfolding for us because a few things were supposed to happen and didn't happen and so we needed to get even clearer. We sat down as a family and we talked about all the things that we want to create 
for our new home and everybody had their input and as it was over that process now next week we move into that in that into that home now we haven't been in a home now since October last year because we were traveling with the put your hand up which is a community initiative the other thing I want to say about young warrior though is that what we discovered through the process of as we've been doing this program is that it's just as important to give the young, these young people the tools, but then we need to make sure that the parents mm. are on board as well. Yeah. So because if we teach these young people the, these initiatives and these, these um, we give them these tools and then they go back into an environment that's not supportive, they just regress it's regressive learning. So every single young person who comes on one of our programs, their parents must also come for a half day workshop as well and learn about what it is that the young people have been learning about so that they can go home and they've got a lexicon that is common amongst them. I suppose the other thing is I, we both interviewed the parents beforehand and, and I've said no to quite a few young people coming on the program for two reasons. Firstly, the parents will say, please, can you just fix my son uh, or my daughter? And we'll just turn around and say, well, firstly, they're not broken. So, and then, I'll, and then I'll, I'll ask a series of questions about understanding their family environment. And it'll become very evident very quickly that the adults in the family possibly are of a less maturity than the actual young child needs. So I've had a number of dads say, can you mentor my son? And my point to them is, well, how about we get you in a position where I don't need to mentor your son, you can do that yourself. And then engage your community around so, so that the young son only has that great connected relationship with my father through the teenage years, really pivotal, needed relationship in the teenage years, but also you've set up an environment in your local community where you've got well-rounded, emotionally literate, pure men that your, your son can learn off from other people as well. So our big, our big thing and theme is we believe every single problem on the globe currently can be solved at a community level in a global context. But so much in Australia, and I know because of your, the way your country was birthed, um, you're slightly different in certain places. Actually, I think you're, you're closer to what needs to happen than, than some posts in Australia. Australia believe the government have the, the answers and that we must turn to the government. No, stop. That's very disempowering. It starts within the community, and the community are a bunch of individuals who can stand together from a common need, a common purpose, and build these systems within our community. So a lot of the, what the Resilient Leaders Foundation does is goes into community to re-establish elders in the community that, to help empower people to run programs for youth, but not only youth, but for adults who have gone missing as well. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the whole part is that, that a community, say, in Orlando is going to be very different to a community in New York, which is going to be very different to, to Fort Leavenworth, you know. Everyone needs their own specific program and the people who know the need best are the people themselves. So it's about empowering the young leaders to step up. doesn't matter age. An elder is not virtue by age. It's virtue of wisdom. And wisdom is, is lived knowledge or lived experience. So that's, that's that's a long answer. That's a long answer. That's a beautiful, beautiful, powerful answer. So the Young Warrior Project is so the Young Warrior Project you have is for, for boys and girls. Um, it, it's we're just about to run our first co-ed Young Warrior. We started off with just boys. We're about to run our first co-ed Young Warrior in two weeks. Yep. Uh, for a school in the Sunshine Coast, which we're all really excited about because our eldest daughter, Abby, gets to participate, which she's pretty happy about. Uh, and the, the women's young women's program will be rolled out over the next couple of years. It was important for us to get uh, facilitators who were able to do the work because otherwise it just would have become unsustainable for us. So we needed right. to take step by step. Right, so it's, this isn't just you leading these all the time. You've got facilitators, you've got people trained. Yeah. We're all about giving, giving the, the stuff to the community. So in Australia currently we've got four major communities engaged in what we call the Community Empowerment Project, which is uh, training up people within those communities to run these programs. And then what happens is we create a movement of like-minded people who are a resource for everyone. It's a network. Um, and we've also, you know, Kirsty mentioned the Put Your Hand Up campaign, um, which is this T-shirt, by the way. Put your hand up. <laughs> there you go. And that's all about, and you would see in my videos, Andy, that I, 
I have a call to action at the end, which is for, for men, but it, I say men and women know this as well. It, the issues aren't just gender specific, but put your hand up if you need help and you don't have the answers. If you feel stuck, if you feel hollow, if you feel disconnected, just put your hand up and what will happen is the right person will come if you allow them to. So um, we, we, we've done that. We went around, the, the, went around Australia, literally right around Australia, running these programs last year. Uh, and it really fell out that the communities we have, uh, were a lot of people, we, what we do is we get not only participants who wanted to find out the knowledge, we get people, healers, practitioners of all different modalities from psychotherapy through to Reiki, all in the room from their local community so that when people put their hand up, they go, right, well, talk to Michael. He runs something on Tuesday night. If you resonate with him, go to his stuff or talk to Angela. She does something on weekends. Go on, whoever you resonate with, go and connect with. So we're all about community connection. building and connection. Yeah. So that, yeah. that flows right through. Connection and choices and resiliency, getting away from victimhood. No, no, you're not broken, so you don't need anyone else to fix you. Yeah. Yeah. Just before Apio goes, I mean, yeah. at the moment in the Australian Defence Force, something's really hit hard, and and it's a subject no one's willing to own, and I'm damn sure it's hit in the American military as well because of what I've seen, and that is I've served, therefore I deserve, and it's this entitlement mentality that says everyone else is going to help me fix better because I served for my country, I laid down my life, I lost mates. You therefore, you owe me. I'm here to suggest as a person who's, who's met the Grim Reaper on the battlefield, no one owes you anything. You made a choice to go and do what you did and I salute you for the courage and the bravery that you demonstrated in doing that and I'm with you for that. But as a veteran, I found the most empowering thing that I could ever do was let go of that victim nature, that victim nature that says I've served, therefore I deserve. As veterans, I realise in our society we are leaders and if I can stand as a beacon of hope that you can go through post-traumatic stress disorder and recover from it, if I suffer from anything, it's post-traumatic growth because I've established meaning and vitality and purpose behind, behind my suffering, then we can lead the community and the community are the reason why we join the forces anyway in the first place. So, mm -hmm. sorry, you got me on. That's one of my big issues. <laughs> you know, and that, that seems to really tie into a, a consistent theme that I've been hearing from both of you. That is sustainability sustainable humanity you you've used the word sustainable multiple times during the course of our conversation and i'm really curious to to hear your take and, and perhaps hear a little bit more background on how you arrived on that sustainability as far as as it applies to not the environment which of course we as human beings are part of that but specifically to sustainable human beings such a good question i think that um for me sustainability indicates a level of awareness where we're not just focused on, I'm not just focused on me and I'm not just focused on us and my little family. Of course, that is what's most important to me. But in order for my actions to be sustainable, I need to take the whole into account. And when I say the whole, I'm also thinking in terms of time. So if my actions are going to impact something, a, a community 10 years down the track, then I need to be aware of that. Now, all of these things, a level of awareness that brings in the whole allows my actions to be sustainable. It's that, it, it's that understanding of we are all connected and they say it takes a community to raise a child. But the thing is, in our communities, at the moment, we are becoming more and more disconnected from each other, which means we don't trust each other. And we don't trust each other because we don't trust ourselves to take the actions that are most aligned with what's most important to us. So again, as James said, we ask people the question, who am I? And when they come back to the answer to that question, they actually start to think at a more global level, at a more connected level, which brings them back to bringing community into their decision-making, which is more sustainable. And you look at resilience too. I mean, an individual on their own, doesn't matter how resilient they are, is less capable and less resilient than the group. Yeah. Because that, that's naturally able to, to fan right across. You look at a heavy lifting task. If you've got to get a whole bunch of cement off the back of a truck and put it on the sideline, 
you do it yourself or you do it as a group, which one is going to be done easier? It's exactly the same with the issues of the globe at the moment, the issues of the, of the community at the moment. So when we, when we find out who we really are and then we connect and actually have conversations as opposed to, you know, who did best at football or basketball last weekend, it's like, how are you going? And, and not accepting the first answer of good, because good is such a nondescript word. It's almost as bad as interesting. It's two very nondescript words. And, and people, when I talk to people, I generally will have to say after how are you going and they give me the first answer. I say that's not really an answer. I don't ask a question unless I want and I'm interested in the answer. I've just used interested, haven't I? Um, <laughs> but, in a different context. Yeah, in context. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, so you know, I, have, I have a real desire to understand how you feel. It's why I asked the question in the first place and sit down. And now I used to have a lot of friends in the military, lots and lots of friends. I have some incredible people in my life now that, that go beyond friendship, that go to brotherhood and sisterhood now. And there's not, not too many people that can get into that fraternity. Each one of them has owned their own stuff in life. And they've all got, everyone's got our journey. I'm still owning my We're stuff. Still working, <laughs> We're still working. Yeah. <laughs> if it was done, you would still be here. So I'm glad you're still working on it, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Guilty. <laughs> So that's, that's it. Resilience really builds sustainability uh, and it does it because of the context that's done in it. Yeah. It reminds me, you know, asking people, how are they? And stuff. Um, something I got from a positive psychology professor I had was he would ask people, how are you? And they give it a good, give it the crappy answer of nothingness. And he would say, no, how are you really? Yeah. Oh, and that would get people to pause. And then they would, oh, have that deeper answer. But yeah. And it's almost like, you mentioned authenticity has kind of become a buzzword and can be just can be another empty act that people try to pretend they're authentic without knowing what that means. Mm -hmm. And community can be that way too. Like, well, yeah, I have a community. I live with people. I don't know their names. I don't have anything to do with them, but I'm in a community, right? So we, yeah. it's the connected community that's resilient, sustainable, yeah. that yeah. 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 empowering, right? Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Beautifully put. Yeah, isn't it fascinating? I, you know, especially with your background, having grown up on a farm, James. How oftentimes when you go to those communities that are supposedly so geographically, you know, dispersed, yet and sometimes they are more connected than the communities of you know people living all in the same apartment building. Mm. Yeah. It's by nature. It's interesting you, you mentioned that too, because there's quite a bit going on with that farming community here in mm -hmm. Australia. They got very high depression rates. Mm -hmm. My father was one of four major local icons in the farming community and he's the only one who didn't take his own life, the only one to die of natural causes. The last one died at the age of 72 with a 12-gauge shotgun in his mouth. Mm. Why is that happening? Well, we've done a lot of work in, with people in the farming community Mm -hmm. And the more and more they become disconnected from the land, the more and more they try and fit square peg round hole into the land, the more and more they listen to the agribusiness model, which is not about sustainability, it's actually about mass production. The more they, they know they have to smash the land with certain fertilisers, etc., to attempt to get uh, a certain level of produce. But it's been shown that that actually decreases the richness of the land and the vitality of it. Therefore, you're getting one, less nutrients in the food you're producing and two, your crop isn't actually as good, so you need to produce more. So when they learn this, they start turning around their practices and then they can really start uh, building that relationship. I call it like um, we teach people how to meditate as well. And, you know, when I was in the military, I thought meditation was just a bunch of tree-hugging idiots. And uh, <laughs> now I teach it. I think that's a little bit funny. <laughs> but, uh, you're hugging a lot of trees now. <laughs> no, no, I get hug the trees, man. The trees are cool. Um, but uh, the thing is, although I, I don't have it wear a tea cosy or don't necessarily have long hair, but any, it doesn't matter who, who you are. The thing is, I teach the farmers quite often to do what I call the gladiator. And I don't know if you remember of that Russell Crowe movie, The Gladiator, when he's walking down the hill in the cornfield and it's really majestic and he's putting his hand into the corn and you can yes. feel the connection. That's right, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that, with farmers, I mean, one farmer realised that he had 9,000 acres. He was, he was cropping 70% of that. He's now reduced that to 30% crop 
uh, and changing the rest of the modalities around and how he actually he crops. Why? Because he went out and he started to, to listen to the signs that nature was presenting to him. And he started to see it instead of just driving through his paddocks every day. He started to see what was actually happening and started to turn that around. And their family turned around because of that. Mm. Their relationships with his, his partner turned around and his kids has turned around as well. Mm. So everything by nature, it just you talk about joy, that came back into that community. And then that spreads. And you know what joy's like? It's, it's wild for man. It's, it's crazy around. And it's, it's, that's what brings these communities together. Yeah, indeed. So again, it pulls us back to that connectedness, being aware, being, you know, paying attention to the signs and the signals mm -hmm. that come to us, not just from the land, but from the people around us as well. Yeah. And, yeah, and it really makes sense that the, the, the land is centered and connected at all times. So you're helping people get yeah. in touch and recognize that again, right? Remember what they probably already learned and then they forgot as they grew up. Yeah, exactly. That's why a lot of our classrooms are around campfires when we're out in the middle of the bush. Mm. No technology. Like when young people and, and men come on my programs, I say, there's a box with all your mobile phones and technology in it. And some of them go, ah! It's like one of those movies where you've just got that guy who's just come in and he's being told to unload his guns and he's pulling out guns from all these different parts of himself or they're pulling out the iPad, the, you know, the, the, uh, the iPod Nano and, you know, the phone. And it's like, dude, how much technology are you walking around with? <laughs> the other thing, though, is that nature has so much to teach us just by being. So when we allow ourselves just to go and sit on the grass for half an hour, we see so much that we wouldn't see otherwise. And I've had women come on programs and by the end of it, you know, one of the things that they decide to do is they live in a city and all of a sudden when they're deciding the steps that they need to take to connect more with themselves, they'll go, there's this park down the road that I've never been to and that I've never really taken much notice of, but I'm actually going to go and visit that park more regularly and just sit on the grass because they realize simply by coming into an environment where they're surrounded, where they're surrounded by nature, which is where we do um, our work. And we talk about the symbols that are in nature. They realize I've been missing so much just because I've been so focused on anything but myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're focused on all your electronics and devices, you're not really living. Yes. Right? Yeah. The big point I'm making, I don't know how this will go down in America, but um, a gun has never killed anyone. It's what's done with the gun. It's technology has never killed anyone. It's how technology is utilised. So I had an amazing chat with a very smart man, probably 10 brains in his one head that he'd engage, you know, in a conversation intermittently. So the conversation went full. He owns his own university. He's on a number of boards of NASA. He's currently investigating artificial intelligence that doesn't only look after driving a car but has accident reduction where it makes a moral choice to not only, it might not avoid the accident, it might cause the car to have the accident which would save a school bus of 23 people that's coming on. I said, mate, I won't buy your technology. Sorry, brother, I'm not going to get into a car which is going to kill me. Um, but I asked him this question. I said, so uh, we've talked to a 14-year-old who he went three layers down in the web into what do you call it, the dark or the deep web or whatever it is. And he could show us at the age of 14 how to get whatever we wanted and no one could track him. If they broke through the firewall, he'd be overseas somewhere, blah, blah, blah. So in the end, three pills of LSD were purchased for $30 and sent by the Australian postal system, delivered three days later. So I said to him, that's what's happening in Australia right now. And technology and computer systems are becoming so intuitive that six-year-olds can do this type of stuff. It, is it going to get younger and younger? And he said, yes. And I said, what technological stopgap have we got to help us? stopping them getting access to that and he said there is none so here's a guy cutting edge technology he's a futurist he sees what's happening and he's saying nothing i said well i've got the solution for you and he said i'd be very interested in that i said if we teach kids young people how to know themselves at the earliest age possible then they'll know how to make choices which are right for them and if you look at young teenagers exploring the web at the moment, most of it's actually not addictive or not vindictive in nature. They're actually doing it out of uh, an interest, a desire to find out, out of intrigue, 
and, and run down rabbit warrens. Wow, man, I can get this, that and the other. Have you seen this? And quite often they're using it as a means for social acceptance. Have you seen what this is, man? I can get you this, that and the other. So social acceptance is a need for external gratification, external recognition and validation. If we can teach them at a young age, hey, just be yourself and understand and realise that you are enough in the world and that's why you walk on two feet, then it doesn't matter what technology will come their way. It, it's how they will then be able to use it, which will be able to, again, go back to that word sustainability, that'll become sustainable into our future. It's such a great point that James makes. I just want to take us back to the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about um, how we project and how we believe that certain emotions are bad and what what we can tend to do as adults, if it's electronics with our kids, we'll blame our kids are becoming more disconnected and they don't talk to each other because of the electronics. And it's just like James said, you know, it's not the electronics that are bad. It's actually that we don't know how to use them effectively. So um, we, we realised... Uh, just last week, we took our own awareness of how we projected onto our kids to a new level. We, our kids will do something or they'll make a decision or they'll make a comment. And because we then come at that comment, we hear that comment through our own filters, we will project our opinions onto our kids rather than actually listening and asking them questions about what they truly mean. So when we can allow ourselves to, rather than blaming technology and blaming society and blaming everything out there, when we can come back to the family unit and sit around the dinner table and actually have a discussion, which is really challenging for some families. Mm. And we know that because we've worked with families that do find it really challenging. You know, the families that have got three teenagers or whatever, people can struggle to get everyone around the table at the same time. But when we do actually allow ourselves to sit down and have real conversations as a family, we can we can let go of the parent role and we can sit back and we can just ask questions. And that's that, as you guys know, that's the essence of holding space as well. Because if we can sit back and ask questions, what we're doing is we're, we're developing a rapport of trust. And what we're sending is, I, I really want to listen to what you have to say. I really want to hear what you've got to say, because it's interesting. And rather than going, no, you just, you just want everything now. And that's just my projection onto my kids. And that's part of the, the messages that we, we really, really want to send because we've learned about that over the years as well. A lot of people, though, turn to us and say, yeah, it's all well and good, James and Kirsty, to say that, you know, my teenagers don't want to come to my dinner table. Uh, and so they won't try. And what's happened is over a period of the teenager's life, they've the, the parents have chosen to make a series of decisions that have closed down on their end of communication mm -hmm. with the child. And they'll say it's the child's fault. Well, you can't control the child. There's only three things you control in life, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, and they're yours and yours alone, not your child's. So what are you bringing to the relationship with the child which you can control, you can turn around? Do you, when you ask a question, actually give the answer to the child? Do you get annoyed and abrupt at the child's answer? In other words, close down again. So the work that we do with parents who, especially with teenage kids, Go, oh, you know, you know how it is with teenage kids. Well, no, I don't. Yeah, sure, I've got two young ones that are coming up. I am playing. I'm, I am trying to play best on ground every day as a parent to make sure they continually have that open communication to me. So Abby, our eldest, comes to us the other day. She walked into the kitchen, and she said she was she was welled up, and I was cooking dinner. And I was a bit behind time on the old dinner steaks. My time and space hadn't actually been that good. So anyway, I turned around and I called my eye and I stopped. And I said, yeah, is there something else? And she said, can I tell you something? Now, I could have turned around and said, after dinner, how about I get dinner ready and, and it's right. What's more important, the dinner or my child? So I said, no, yeah, cool. Come and I, and I took her out of the kitchen and I sat her on my lap and I said, Tell me about it, Abs. She told me five things. One, two, three, four, five. And they progressively got deeper and deeper. One was about anger. One was about sadness. The, the latter three were about shame, shameful things that she felt she, um, she'd done and about guilt as well because guilt and shame, you know, they're like ugly twin sisters hanging out together. Mm -hmm. So the thing is she was able to talk to that. And then she, she ended. She cried. She was with her and I just held her and she cried. 
And at the end of it, she goes, now there's one last thing I want to tell you, Dad, but I don't want to tell you just yet. I want, I want you and Mum to be there with me. And I said, yep, cool. You just let us know when you're ready. And, you, and I asked her how she was. I didn't ask any, the questions that I asked were about getting a better understanding of what she was saying. If I didn't understand what she was saying, I'd ask a question of clarification, an open question of clarification. Anyway, the next night, Kirsty and I are sitting out on the back deck, having a glass of wine, sunsets going down over the hills, beautiful evening. Abby comes in and places herself, weaves away between the two of us and bonks a butt down on the step. And she goes, can I talk to you? And so Kirsty and I said, of course. She told us the most incredible sexual shame story that I've been witness to from an 11-year-old. She wasn't 11, 10 then. But the way she owned it, like I was in tears, literally was in tears about how she was saying, I've done this and, and I feel really guilty. I was in tears because of the courage that she, she was demonstrating in front of the two of us. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we talked about it. There was tears. There was tears all around, actually. Uh, and, and then Kirsty asked a brilliant question. So she says, what did you take away? What can you take away from this discussion? And Ab said that I can tell you anything. At 10, and as a bloke who used to cut my children down with anger, to have my daughter turn to me and say that, it's like it's a gift from the heavens. And I know it only came because I was ready and willing to do the internal work to get myself in a position where my daughter trusts me enough to do that. And, and that's what we suggest to people is just because you believe you're not a good father or a good parent right now, the first step is going into the emotion and cleansing it and coming to a point of forgiveness. So then when you can work out strategies, open strategies to re-engage with your kids again, noting that you're not actually in control of the outcome. Mm-hmm. The outcome is very much dependent on them wanting to re-engage you and you have to be comfortable with that. Don't get angry that they turn around and put their hand up at you and say, get out of town. But don't accept that as a kickback of love. Just love them anyway. And when you allow yourself to be connected as a human, you will take the steps that you need to take to know that that you are doing enough as a parent so that the child, when they become an adult or an older child, a young person, they're all young people, (laughs) but when they get older, they are going to make the decisions that are best for them and that are right for them and letting go of the outcome. Because we say it to our kids, we can't control whether you decide you're gonna take drugs when you get get older. What we can control though, is to show you um, a better way or to help you understand why. And to know that what we have done as a parent, as a human, is enough. Andy, mate, when we talked to you the other day, we were in a park in a place called Mwollombar and we went and grabbed a bit of lunch to sit down and we sat down and about uh, 10 minutes after closing down from you, there was an incident that occurred in the park. There was some screaming and it was really high-pitched and someone came yelling out, a young girl came yelling, he's killed himself, he's killed himself. And a quick perusal of the situation, we were able to establish quite quickly that drugs were involved, that, um, you know, there's a lot of hyper-hysteria, ungrounded hysteria, which actually demonstrated the fact that they weren't actually connected to the emotion. The emotion was just rattling them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will take their kids and say, come on, kids, let's move on. We sat there and blessed at the fact that there was a beautiful lesson for our children. Mm-hmm. Our children can see what happens when you lose track of who you really are and you become disconnected. And, and our children are now so emotionally literate, we started asking them questions about how those people were feeling. And they could tune in and they could give some incredibly articulate, emotionally literate answers. It's another thing, we don't believe in emotional intelligence, although I love Daniel Goldman. I think he's an amazing guy and same with Selva and all the rest of them. But we believe intelligence lives up here. Literacy is something which means that you not only understand it, you experience it and you can actually use it in your life, which I know is what he means in what his stuff says. Uh, and that, you know, he's, he's amazing at the work. We take the next step, which is bring the words to emotional literacy and emotional intimacy is, is the space we're dealing yeah. And do, do you find, is there an ideal age to, to, to start being this open with, with young people or uh, is, can someone be too young? What, what do you think? As soon as they are born, they need to be, the environment needs to be set. Matter of fact, 
before that. So many dads, particularly, you see them down the pub. And the environment, that was a really good point that you just made, though. Set the environment. Yeah. And you do that. Sorry, I'm interrupting for a specific reason. Um, we set the environment by the way that we interact with each other, by our relationship with each other. It sets a really, that sets a really firm environment for our children. So, you know, so many dads go down the pub. You guys called the pub over there? We know what you mean. Yeah, but we know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, go to the bar. <laughs> and you hear them at the bar and they talk about their missus and they use some quite disparaging comments, such as, you know, I'm out for a beer and you know, I allowed this beer and then I got to get home. And, you know, I've been in a bar actually in Washington, D.C. and there was a, I got chatting to a guy and he said exactly that. Mind you, he was feeling really guilty because he had to get back on the train to go to a Bible study class. <laughs> I said, what's your relationship with God like, mate? Anyway, <laughs> but, but, you know, and they, they make these disparaging comments and a lot of the time, especially us men, feel when the families come along, we feel in, in, encroached upon our freedom, our wings have been clipped and when a male feels that his wings have been clipped, he'll immediately go into a series of behaviours, close down, exactly right, he'll close down, but he'll go into behaviours which are pushing back at that. Some people call it aversion to authority and other things, but it's a pushback because he feels his freedom has been clipped. So the thing is, going and understand, the environment starts before you've decided to have children. The environment says, right, I'm just about to enter a new phase of my life. I'm going to reevaluate what I really stand for and what I really important or I value in my life so that I understand, okay, before I'm having kids, I, I need personal time. You know, we've worked out a relationship now. We have us time and then I have a bit of personal time. When the kids come along, the personal time evaporates. But the thing is, right, as a team, I really evaluate my personal time. How can I set up so that we can have personal time, go out and blossom, come back? And then as a small community, a micro community called a family, we can look after each other and we can nurture each other and know what each other values and how to weave that together. And that's, that, that dissolves resentment right there. And it sets up the openness to be able to write, be emotionally literate and talk and talk about emotions. When your kids are three... They have already programmed so much about how they will be as an adult. And also talk about consequences. So I remember when um, Abby, our eldest, was five and something was happening in the kitchen and someone close to us was in the house and she was watching what was going on. And I was talking to Abby about she'd done something and I said, well, have a look at what's what's happened and I talked her through the, the actions and the consequences of the actions and what had occurred for her. She wasn't happy about it, but I didn't I didn't mollycoddle her and I didn't do any of that. I just allowed her to experience the consequences. And this person said to me, She's five. And I said, Exactly, she's five. If she can get this at five, imagine what she's gonna be like when she's twenty-five. When we feel judged, we'll close down. So as setting the environment, non-judgmental environment and nurturing environment, compassionate environment is really important. And when you don't judge a child, they'll tell you some amazing things. And that, that ability to share is really huge. If, if you're judging another, you're actually judging yourself. And so that person can be a beautiful gift for you. We use this term, the mirror, because you look into that person and go, what currently am I judging in you that I don't like about myself? And that actually, because you control those three things, thoughts, words, and deeds, it gives you a beautiful place to start. That's what we call when the warriors speak, going in and fighting a demon. You're letting that one go. And I saw a beautiful movie uh, the other day, um, Doctor Strange, where the, the ancient woman turns around and says, uh, we, never, we never lose our demons, we transcend them. And I thought that is a beautiful articulation of the inner growth journey. Yeah. It's, it's similar to, you know, there are no negative emotions. Right? So it's not about dispelling a demon or getting rid of it. No, it's transcending it, building a hub, standing on that. Right? Well, I and again, as we come back to who we are as a person and as we reconnect, as we talked about, we know that we're setting the right environment for our kids because we're providing them the example that they need to be able to make the decisions that are right for them as they get, as they get older. Beautiful. Well, I love the environment you're setting. I love that you, you, you teach you, you grow, your experience, your leadership is all by example. Um, so what, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you and, and learn more about your programs? Probably the best way to go is onto Facebook, Facebook, the old, the old community, the Resilient Leaders Foundation. Uh, go and like us on Facebook. 
And from there, you'll be able to see all the events we run. You'll be able to There's get... also a sign-up button there that you can download a free 30-page ebook that James and I have written about um, living resilient relationships. And we talk a lot about emotions in there and guilt and shame and, um, and how to interact with each other in a family unit. All right. You talk about emotions. You know, imagine that. Jeez, that's that's. Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's all right because we'll lower our voice when we talk about emotions so that we can be deep boys. You have your jug of Miller while you're doing it. <laughs> cool. So I, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate the the work that you're doing. Um, I look forward to it to it expanding and you uh, and taking over the world. You guys are great. <laughs> Coming to visit you guys in the states. Yeah, Sweet. definitely. We'll get you on the Real Men Feel Live tour. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, uh, so thanks again, James and Kirsty. Um, people visit the show now, so we'll put all the different ways that people can get in contact with you, uh, the various Facebook sites and Twitter and Instagram. I've got all that information and uh, help people get in touch with your programs and, and help people put their hands up. Right? Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, guys. Great to meet you. Right. Real Men Feel will be live again next Tuesday, March 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern, when we'll be discussing internalized homophobia. And I have no idea where that will lead. Um, I think it's going to be Alfie and I daring to dig in. Well, yes, we will. <laughs> so thanks. Thank you, Alfie, for joining us. Thanks, James and Christy, again. And uh, be well, everybody. Good night, folks. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Until next time. Visit realmenfeel.org, join the Real Men Feel group on Facebook, and share what you thought of this show. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com and Apio Hunter at apiohunter.com.